to More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully by listening it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. In today's episode I'm talking to a friend of mine Sarah, a single mum who lives in Melbourne with her son. She's a birth doula who runs her own business and loves life. We discuss how she discovered who she really was whilst travelling across the world. The incredible experiences she had and the people she met, which have ultimately shaped her life. The challenges of being a single working mum and how rewarding her work is. I really hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Tell me a little bit about your family and growing up. I was born in 1976. We lived in Ashburton and my parents, um, my dad is Australian born. His parents came from Poland the year that World War Two, just before World War Two yep. broke out. So they came over and migrated. So he was born here. My mum's side, she was born in Egypt. Um, her parents are from Syria and they were the Jews in exile from Syria to Egypt, exiled from Egypt into um, making their way to Israel, which was Palestine. But they, the year that Palestine became Israel, they migrated then. So yeah, mum's got a pretty intense childhood. She comes from a very large family. And then, so my mum met my father in London when my dad was having his dental practice. My father had a previous marriage, but I didn't find out about that until I was about 13, 14. So I had no idea that we had um, an elder sibling from a previous marriage until I was a lot older. Did that affect you in any way? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was all big because we found out the day that dad was telling us that he was leaving mum and you've got a big sister. <laughs> it's like, huh? So it was all a bit of a shock, you know, shock on that we had to get our heads around that he was leaving and shock that we, there was like all these questions then around having another sister. And did you have any sense when he said, I'm leaving, that he was going, that their marriage was not in a good oh, place? I knew that their marriage was... Yeah, very difficult for many years. So it was really hard. Did they? So was that because they argued a oh, lot and shouted a beyond, lot? Beyond, yeah. Mum was pretty intense. Dad was always trying to keep the peace, but it was just really hard. Mum's quite intense. And did you, I'm interested, you apportion blame at all? Like, oh, I blame my dad for leaving or not doing enough I or was, my mum for yeah, being too loud? Yeah, I did see my dad for about five years after he left mum. Felt really sorry for mum. Dad went into another relationship pretty quickly and that was all a bit of a shock. I was really, it was a really hard age. Like I was really struggling at school. So, you know, Dad was my 
the one sitting up with me really late at night doing homework and then all of a sudden I lost that and mum was just not available in that way. So it was really a really challenging time. So he really let me down. I guess, you know, as parents they tried to... Oh, everybody's just in survival mode. It was really ugly. It was a really, really ugly divorce and settlement and mum didn't manage her feelings around it at all. And, yeah, it was really hard on us three kids. So there was three of us. I've got two amazing brothers, Sean and Ilan. They were all very... Um, we were raised in Ashburton and then we moved to East Malvern, Cochrane Street. <laughs> it was a fabulous house and we just loved it there. And yeah, lots of memories. Good memories as well as difficult ones made there. And what did you learn? Were there things that you take from that uh, before they got divorced, separated? Mm. That have stood with you now, good and bad? Things you remember, moments yeah. or lessons or what would be those things that you've gone, oh, you know what, that's really stuck with me now? I think it's really shaped me in how I've moved forward in doing a lot of work on myself to find peace and also to be able to re- be really mindful about my own separation from my son's father and how to just really look after myself and my mental health and my and the way that I lead my life in setting a strong example for Ankara has been really important for me. So I guess that, yeah, I spent a lot of years traveling since. So I, I had a very difficult relationship with my mom and I didn't feel at home here in Melbourne. And I was really quiet. School was just always really hard. Although I changed from a private Jewish school into um, a public school for year 12. I went to McKinnon and it was the best year of my life and my grades went up, everything went up and it was just basically putting me with really good friends and in a better learning environment that really suited me. And why did you move school? I was just fed up with Scopus. So I was really just, it was just so big and so overwhelming and I just didn't feel like I connected with anything. I felt lost in a sea. Yeah, and and did you make that decision? Yeah, because it's a big decision to make in the final year of school. It was. My parents weren't happy, particularly mum, but I was pretty adamant. I didn't feel very connected to my Judaism. I felt, you know, there was a lot around that as well. Yeah, so there was a mum was very strict when we were growing up, and having non-Jewish friends was a big deal, and that kind of really stayed with me in in, in feeling quite angry towards her, like. Did you feel I was quite pus- rebellious? Did, yeah. did you feel put upon? Like, I yes. this is not my, I don't. Well, I didn't. I felt like I was uh, being told what to do rather than you making your own decisions about how you wanted to lead yeah. your life. And I appreciate you're young, yeah. but still. I think when when I was young, I just didn't know. I felt put upon. I felt forced. I felt like, but as an adult looking back, I just what I can see is I didn't connect. I didn't connect with my mother. I didn't connect with my dad. I didn't connect with anybody at school I didn't feel seen or I didn't connect with myself I wasn't you know I'd have these big great big feelings and then not being able to connect in or be able to be with them so it was just really hard to be anywhere even in the new school but it was much better in the new school because I had very very dear friends who we all loved each other so much and so it was much easier and do you think that lack of connection with parents school and and peers etc but more with your with your parents mm. was did your did your parents gravitate more to your brothers than you or so did you feel oh I'm like left out classic middle child or not wasn't that were they did, did, did they just weren't really present for any of you well dad had moved out 
into a new house but then quickly into another house with the new family and then I wasn't talking to him anyway so there was that real disconnect from there and I wasn't really emotionally available or emotionally intelligent to be able to navigate that my mum was pretty devastated from the from the divorce so she was really unavailable emotionally in any way you know I just remember having to get up and make my lunchbox every day and do my breakfast and I was quite alone a lot a lot and my brothers my older brother is very introverted and quiet and my younger brother was just kind of floating around and so we were kind of like all these boats floating around (laughs) with no kind of deep connection and I suppose because you're that age did you you never do you never talked about it with your brothers at that point Mm. so you had no idea what they were really feeling did you ever kind of sit down and go oh god how do you feel about this yeah, it was very hard to connect with them. It was very, very difficult. Hence you would feel very Everybody alone. was in survival mode. Yeah. Everybody was just primarily responding to the, the scenario. Mm. Yeah. Which is pretty awful yeah. to have to yeah. deal with that. Yeah. And then so you go to McKinnon. So I go to McKinnon. I thrive. I have better friendships that come out of that. I have... A best friend who was at another school and really connected in with her family as well so I was getting some pretty lovely parenting from there which I'm so grateful for because there was so much loving kindness it's like a little bit of a life raft you know mm. when you're yeah but always the feeling of feeling completely lost and then after you finished school then what did you do after that so I went I followed my my best friend she really wanted to do photography and I had no idea what I wanted to do and so I just followed her into that because I loved it as well so glad I did that it's coming it's taking a comeback now I'm taking so many photos at births with women and um, documenting their experience and it's so magic so I love that it's having its comeback yeah so I did that for for almost two two years and then from there, I worked my butt off. I had about five different jobs. And in about six months, I saved about $16,000. And I bought a ticket for my one year travel around Europe. And, and off I went. And you mentioned it before, but why did you... Was it just get me as far away from here as possible? I where, think where, I was where, just, what was your goal? Where were you trying to... You, just, just you had no plan? I had no plan. I had a, a, a visa to work in London. I had spoken to lots of people. I was ready for an adventure. I knew that I wanted to just go on a big tra- trip and travel and see the world and, yeah, grow. And, and how old were you then, Ali? T- I was 20, 20, yeah. 20, 21, yeah. yeah. On your own? On my own. Mm. And that didn't bother you at all? Cause it it's a didn't big deal until too. I arrived. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big deal. Still, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty. I was. I got to Spain. So Spain. And why Spain? Because I love the color red. So I had this big kind of fascination in my youth. And you spoke no Spanish. I spoke no Spanish. Now I speak fluently, but I I just went right. We'll start in Spain because I like the color red, and I like flamenco, and it looks really interesting. And bought my Lonely Planet guide and. And where did you fly to in Spain or go to in Spain? I flew into Madrid. This is a bit of a point of controversy with my friend Ian, but so I arrived. It was literally like my second day and I was shitting myself. Like I was like, oh my God, big city. I have no idea where I am. I know nobody. 
yeah, I, so I was sitting at a coffee table shitting myself and no surprise. there was a phone booth next to the table and there was an Australian guy crying on the phone to the embassy going, I've been robbed, I don't have any money, I have not my passport, I have no traveller's checks, I have nothing, I'm stranded, I'm... He thinks this happened in Barcelona. I know that it happened in Madrid. So we've got this kind of <laughs> oh, I see. controversy going on around which state was it. I remember it just being because I was fresh off the boat and it was the first thing I'd encountered. And that just made me more terrified. So I overheard his conversation. And when he hung up, I just went up to him and I said, hi, I, I couldn't help but hear your phone call. I'm Australian and I've just arrived my heart goes out to you. Can I help you? What can I do? Do you need some money? Do you, you can just pay me back? Can I take you for lunch? Can, do you need some money for accommodation? Like I was just, right? So I bought a friend. <laughs> Very impressive. You did right? that. Brave. We are still such close friends till today. Amazing. Yeah. So when we had the most amazing time together when we'd met and I looked after him. I think it was about a week. I paid all his accommodation and food and we just went and he, he'd been traveling for a while so he was teaching me and showing me maps and telling me where I should go and kind of you know it was like the perfect person to help me land mm, it's great yes it was great he got his stuff sorted so he got his money sent through and passport and all of that and so off he went and I followed his instructions on my travel trip and um, started doing some traveling so I got to, yeah, around a little bit around Spain and then I came into France and I did a lot of hitchhiking around France. And then and then once you're in the groove and you're in backpackers, you meet lots of people yeah. and then you hook up and then you, you go, oh, I'm going to this city. Do you want to come? Yeah, we'll hitchhike that way. And so we're just doing doing the thing. Yeah, so doing lots of that. And then I ended up in, in London and then I found a job. I started working. Then I fell into a group of great friends and then we started traveling we'd go off and travel together a lot to Scandinavia spent a lot of time in Scandinavia and just Scandinavia because 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 there was another girl there was a couple of girls from Denmark that we'd met and no we were in Denmark and we met a couple of Norwegian girls and then we ended up in Tromsø so the furthest northest point of Norway above the so the northern lights spectacular that was magic that really stayed with me yeah that was. I definitely want to go and see the Northern Lights. Oh my god, One amazing! My yeah, so Tromsø is um, above the Arctic Circle, so freezing like half an hour of light a day, if not. So it's dark all the time. Wow! In winter, and so we were there for Christmas, very white Christmas, <laughs> with lots of Northern Lights and um, all the traditions of Norwegian Christmas. So I kept floating around still with the theme of not feeling connected amongst wonderful people but still feeling very disconnected i had this inkling that i had to get to india why didn't why that that's quite a random i mean maybe not I, random I'd to met, me it sounds random that's all i'd met lots of people along the way I'd, okay so so i'd traveled quite a lot so i'd been to turkey and greece and israel i'd started to meet a lot of people who'd done vipassana meditation i was just like oh yeah i could never do that i, I was too chatty and too I, i'd keep like an art journal as i traveled and you know how can i not do anything for 10 days how could i not talk for 10 days and so then i was you know kind of doing all that travel and I'd come back to London and work and then go off and travel again and then I lived in in Norway for a good four or five months 
And then there was a really deep feeling that I had to get to India. Came back to London, was working to save up for my trip to to India. And I went to India. And what did you do when you were in India? Uh, I came home. (laughs) I came home. I came home. I always call India kind of like the mother. Yeah, she nurtured me back home in my heart. I went to Vipassana. <laughs> I did it and I continued to do it a lot. So I'd travel India and wherever I could, I'd stop and I'd do a course of 10 days sitting silent meditation. And it just really, really brought me so deeply home to become so familiar with my quietness, so familiar with how good it feels to be quiet. As you're saying it to me, I'm thinking I couldn't do that. Yeah. Even though I spend... I'm single, I spend yeah. lots of time on my own. Yeah. But to actually not talk at all, that, yes. that's how it works, for 10 yeah. days, Yes. strikes me as being, wow, I mm. don't know that I have the... We're all capable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of, just do it. <laughs> and so what did yeah. it, you said, it, you kind of said what it gave you. What did it, it gave you uh, that? So it's led by a teacher called Goenka, who's, I think, so you're listening to him on audio, but you do have physical teachers sitting and modelling how you should sit and and the practice and they're holding the space um, old students sit up the front new students sit up the back and I remember in my first ever course I was so scared and I, I had a boyfriend I'd met um, Akash I'd met him up in Dharamsala in the north near the Dalai Lama we met and then it was a very slow coming together he was a lot older than me we worked together for like seven years with him I kind of discovered that the world of meditation. So we can talk about him later if you want. But well, I was going to say now. Yeah. So, now. <laughs> so we said a lot older. Go on, give me a, how old were you? How old was he? Yeah, I was 20. He was 50. So wow. I was 21, 21 or 22, something like that. And what, so what was the attraction? He was Latino. So he was very charming. He was attractive. It, it was like a, an attraction that grew over time. A connection. I felt he just really connected in with me and he deeply cared about me. So it was really lovely. And so that took you back to a place as a child where you didn't feel, going back to what you said yeah, before, you possibly. didn't have that. Mm. And so that gave you what you... At the time, I, I was just fascinated. I was always like, no, this couldn't be. You're just so much older than me. I want to have kids. I've already got to. I'm like, you know, I'm still so young. I can't believe I spent seven years with him. Yeah, we were quite addicted to each other's company and care. And you travelled with him or you stayed in the... We travelled the world. Anyway, so we got to the Vipassana. Oh, yeah, go back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny story about that. So the first one, and I was shitting myself that I couldn't do it. I was up the back and he was up the front because he'd done it a hundred times. And in front of me, there was an Indian woman. And I was surrounded by Indian people and there was like 200 people in the room. The women on this side, the men on that side. The woman in front of me kept talking to the woman across from her. And I was getting so angry and agitated and feeling so frustrated with her. And I complained and I said, I'm finding it hard enough as it is. And she doesn't stop talking and we're not supposed to talk. Like, I mean, come on. (laughs) Right. And I was doing my hissy fit thing and they swapped us. So she put, they put her behind me and me in front and she keeps talking. By the third day, as you're going in and doing the practice which is watching the breath and body scanning and on the third day your mind goes quite still and she starts talking and I got so aggravated I was bursting into tears and I'm like I can't do this is so hard and so I've kind of now as an adult just flipped forward we have a, a 
a belief statement about ourselves and mine was I can't it's too hard and that's been a theme all through my childhood right through my 20s giving birth to Omkara and I think it started to change around giving birth to him and definitely changing that now like that deep-seated patterning belief system anyway so I'm like in tears sobbing wanting to leave can't do it she keeps fucking talking it's all her fault and I'm going off and and then the the woman who's uh, looking after everyone she came up to me and she said I'm happy to move you but I think it's really important for you to know that woman has a mental health issue and that's her sister and we wanted to give her them a chance to have this experience and I went oh my god I'm so sorry (laughs) I felt so bad I was like oh my god I'm so embarrassed I felt so terrible don't move me I'm fine (laughs) I didn't hear her for the rest of the time but it was incredible experience for me I didn't hear her she went on chattering away but I just I unhooked you know how you grab onto something you grab onto a, a, a thought of that's really agitating me. And once I released that, oh, okay, no, no, no. And how do you think, because it's interesting you say that, and, I, and yeah. it takes me to a, um, not in any way the same experience, but similar in as yeah. much as I'm sitting in a cinema, I can't remember when, it doesn't matter when, and someone's talking. Oh. Nobody else seems to be bothered by it at all, except I've completely switched into that person. Fixated. Somewhere over there yeah. to my right, you can't see my hand, I'm pointing over to yeah. my right. Not ne- not next to me, but there's a, they're not loud, there's just a yeah. something. Yeah. And I... It bothers me. And I look around me. No one no one cares. No one seems to be bothered by it. They're watching yeah. the film. And so how did you... I get what you've... Because you knew where she was I, at. So you've... It's almost like you've got no choice, I suppose. But mm. was it... Do you remember what there was... What I you did to... I felt such immense compassion. And I felt so stupid that I got so fixated on it. And I think that that really highlighted to me so many things about my life. About how I fixate on things that... And don't let it go. Now I, I tackle it with a different approach. Instead of coming from the I, the me, the narcissist, I go more into what might be happening for them. Where are they at? What, what's happening? What's their experience? What, what's going on for them? So trying to come at it from a different angle, which is more soothing for me to be able to cope with different situations. Mm. That's a big shift. So having more compassion. Yeah. It took years to cultivate, but that's where I guess it started. That's where I guess I noticed more my narcissism and was able to start, because I think we're all a bit narcissistic in some way, but when we actually see it, oh my God, poor lady, and how amazing and how courageous that she put herself in that that situation to attempt that, yeah. It's very easy to go to the place that you went to. Mm. I mean, most people would do that, so I totally get that. To be able to separate that whole part of you because it's about me and why am I suffering and I don't want to feel this way and why, how can you do this to me? Yes. And then go, okay, you know what you just said, so that's... Changed my life. That's amazing. So that was the beginning of a very... So I've probably done about 21 courses in the time before I was 30. So in all that time, I would just travel the world and find a Vipassana centre because they're all over the world and you'd do my retreats and, yeah, changed me so deeply. So in that relationship, you said you were with him for seven years. Yes. And then what was, so what was where, how did the end, what was what the point where it was? I, I knew in my heart that I wasn't supposed to stay with him. We had a grand adventure. I learnt so much about myself, men and the world. I did a lot of growing up. 
because you hadn't been able to do that as a child because of what happened to you with your family dynamic or not just because you that's just your journey that was I think this you know he was extremely loving and caring so that was always really satiating to be deeply loved and cared for and to have someone feel very connected to you so yeah we can stem it back to you know is he replacing dad but my dad was extremely loving and caring as well a bit absent in the times I think the culture is really different from the way I'm parenting is really really different to how my parents parented and that's because of the experience you've had since or because of what happened to you when you were being parented yeah so I think my core value is all about connection and all about Omkara feeling deeply connected to himself connected to me being emotionally available to him and that's interesting that as a a child who experiences parents who are present or not present Mm. you can go one or two ways yes and it's interesting how like you my parents weren't that present Mm. and so I am very present for my children yeah and yet there are other people who just follow the same pattern yeah and I'm interested in why I don't have an answer to that I'm not saying you necessarily have an answer to that why people who don't go I didn't like that yeah so I'm going to do the antithesis of that because I can see how it affected me I don't want my children to experience that Mm -hmm. they just carry on doing Mm -hmm. the same thing that they experienced as a child and they're not really present for their kids yeah I don't know the answer to that, but that's, I do find that fascinating. There are people who just I follow do. just follow the same pattern of behaviour. Yeah, I do, and I think it's you know people numb out or they're just not there yet in their own personal journey. It requires doing the work. So I was going to say it's too hard. Yeah, it's too hard. Yeah, too painful. Haven't met or surrounded themselves yet with people who live like that as well so what happens after you you break up then what what do you do after that Um, how old are you then so your late 20s yeah I kind of forget just traveled everywhere and we we lived in Spain for a lot of that time as well that's where I really picked up Spanish we went back into India then back into Thailand to break up with Akasha was so hard for me it was so hard I was so attached to him I was just like, oh my God, just stick me in a Vipassana center for a year. I was just so, it was probably the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, apart from leaving his dad, <laughs> was the next most challenging thing I've ever had to do. And leaving, leaving relationships are always really hard, but Akash was particularly hard. I didn't think I had the inner strength to do it. I didn't have the inner will. So it took a long time. My plan was, we went to India. I knew I needed to leave him. He knew that I was trying to leave him and it was, he was not making it very easy because he really wanted us to continue on. But I needed to allow myself to have a chance to have kids and meet someone who wanted to have a family. And I was, I just knew that that was going to happen for me. I weaned myself out of him. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's not very happy that I'm trying to do that. And I was very clear that the only way to come out of it, because it was so deep, the attachment, was to nurture my soul and my growth in my own, in myself. So that I could feel strong enough to do it. I was very clearly not feeling capable of doing it. And I knew that I needed to nurture and and deeply kind of, you know, do my yoga, do my meditation, do things that help build me up and sustain me emotionally. That's a pretty Mm. big thing to be able to recognize in yourself. A lot of people wouldn't be able to do that. So it's amazing that you did that. And that's been my life kind of. I think whenever I'm faced with challenges, I go, what do I need to do for self-care so that 
I can create a bit of space between the anxiety of the action and the actual you know, what what needs to happen is create a bit of a gap so to give myself a chance to grow yeah know, and strengthen and try to be graceful finally say what I you finally did it I finally did it and it was very sad it was there was so much love and that was just so sad but I was so excited and at the time I was learning Thai massage in Thailand so I had something great to continue with and so going back to your parents then how yes. in contact were you with so them? by that time dad and I were deep in contact and I that's where I saved all my money because I was living with him and and my stepmom so it happened before <laughs> so I'm trying to go back in my mind the archives <laughs> and yeah. so what made you because that's a big so how long had you been was it you said five or how many years before you didn't speak to me said four I think mum kicked me out and then I contacted him yeah mum and I were really struggling so was it without being really just blunt and honest desperation because you had nowhere else to go that oh, I better speak to my dad he'll have me kind of thing which mean no mum kicked me out I moved I moved out of mum's for a few weeks and then I moved back into mum's and then I made plans to move into an apartment with my best friend's boyfriend because his sister was moving out so I think dad was around at that that's when dad and I started talking again we went out for dinner and then we'd have a chat here and there and again I was young and immature and I didn't you know like friends were everything then last thing you want to do is really hang with your parents and yeah but I remember dad and then there was a very big okay no I'm I need to clean up my act and I'm going overseas what do I need to do to make that happen and then I got all these jobs very driven very just stubborn and determined and then I moved into dad's to be able to save lots of money and that was actually really really great to be there and then I would um, and so how was it between the two of you then did you reconcile the past yeah. Uh, Did he I, talk to you about it or not? I think we the, the deeper conversation about the past happened probably in the years that I've come back with Omkara. Okay. Yeah. As a more, I feel more adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The next chapter. The next <laughs> The guy. Chapter. The next guy. So this guy was... So then Alfredo is his name. Yes, I met him. And then just because life is full of synchronicities and you know it feels like you're in a chess game sometimes and it's you know you moved around by a force greater than myself we were staying at a house in a place called Saksay Waman it so I met Alfredo at a sweat lodge three hours from where I was staying I was at the house where I was staying back in Cusco lo and behold I walk up the pathway and there's Alfredo sitting there and I'm like what are you doing here and he goes I live next door and so I'm like oh my goodness and so the next morning I walk up to the house which he'd built and it was just it blew my mind and what was the connection it was a deep attraction a very quick deep attraction similar age better (laughs) improved (laughs) so how how much older was he then 15 years so how you were by this point you were how old roughly so I had Omkara when I was 29, so I would have been 28. And it was just, and it, what was his what was his part? What, what happened to him? He'd been, been in a relationship before? Yes. Did he have kids? No, what? no kids. Partner that he was with, she left. We didn't initiate straight away, but we were just kind of like floating in this immense attraction. So I'll just jump back to America because I did another Vipassana course there. And it was probably the last proper 10-day one that I've done since having a child. 
one morning I woke up, thoughts going through my head were I was pregnant. Like I had this visualization that I was pregnant and I was like, oh, it's just in mind being imaginative and kind of was trying to sweep it away. And then I just went, let it go. Let the imagination go wild. And I just let my mind, because, you know, Vipassana is all about concentration and scanning the body and keeping your mind really still and focused. And of course, the thoughts will come in, but it's all about bringing your mind back to your focus. I just let go of all technique and I just went mentally satiate yourself, (laughs) you know, in in thought, whatever thought it is. So I just kind of imagined myself getting pregnant and I was growing a belly. And then by the end of the day, I was birthing a baby. And the last vision was of a little boy with long brown hair, with big brown eyes and, and quite tan, dark skin, running to his dad who had long black hair and very dark skin. Was this actually my imagination or was this a vision. Am I going to have a baby soon? Is this my son? Is this the dad? But I was in America, had no vision of Peru yet. That kind of came after. I'd never been, I'd be quite scared of going to South America, to be honest. There were, it was kind of interesting in my travel destinies and how I would travel. There were places I was more fearful to go than others. So I felt quite overwhelmed, even though I spoke the language. So there was no kind of real solid plan to go to South America and I hadn't met him. And then when I met him, when I walked in the room, I still hadn't put two to two together. But when the feeling, when we had actually come together, I went, oh my God, it's you, we're going to have a baby. And then I got pregnant straight away. And then it is as the vision. And so how do you explain that? I don't. <laughs> I can't. It's Have you just... asked people to, who could explain to you how that happened? No, never. I've just Have you, had, have you spoken it... to anybody else who that same experience has happened to? I work with a lot of birthing women now, so I haven't really ever asked them if they've had a vision of the child before, the way I have had it. I haven't analysed it in that way. I've more gone into that was the magic of Om and he was wanting to come down and the second I was pregnant I was like it's a boy and then the whole pregnancy it's a boy finding my midwife was always interesting so I had a home birth in Peru which was not easy because they don't do that they do do it you just have to have the right people with you to do it that's all and how was it to go through pregnancy how many? So who, where, where, who, so, who was your support network? So Alfredo, Omkara's dad, we got married. He, his closest friend was a OBG, was an obstetrician gynecologist. I'm like, <laughs> right? So it was just, she was looking after me. But I knew in my heart, my, my dad sent me over all these books about spiritual midwifery by Ina May. And that's where, that's where my career started, basically. I was so fascinated in everything to do with birth. And why did he send you that? Because I I said, Dad, I need you to go to the bookstore and find me all the books you can find on natural birth. And that was the book he sent me. And it was the most magical book I've ever read. And I I just always knew that I was going to have a home birth, always knew that birth should be something natural. It was this innate knowing from, I think, childhood. It was just, I don't know, very strong in me. You see, you say that, and I'm thinking, how can you? How do you know that? I don't. I, that's, that's how do <laughs> there people like you? And yeah. you, you're saying it to me, and I totally believe you. Yeah. That's exactly your journey. You knew that, yeah. and yet there are other people yes. who either 
that happens to them and they dismiss it because they think that's a load of rubbish? Yeah. Or will they never have that? Well, it's also, you know, because I, now I work in this area and I hundreds and hundreds of women I'm attending their births and, and supporting them through their pregnancies. And it's interesting watching them. Some will present with a very the strongest determination like me in the sense of just I, there's just no way I'm going to birth in a hospital. It was just a knowing. There's just I'm not going to do that. It's not That's not what I'm meant to do. And it's very definite feeling inside. And then there's the other woman who's like, oh, you know, I have to be in hospital. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just listening to the deep knowing. So when I see a woman present to me who's in a hospital, but then they've got a deep knowing about birth, I will always talk about home birth for her and talk about that as an option for her to choose from. But I never really offer it to women who are not too fearful and so that's i was going to ask you have you thought of why there is that distinction between Mm. home versus hospital is it fear yeah it's fear-based often yeah Mm. some women feel more relaxed in a hospital setting some would get too anxious being at home and that will complicate the birth so you where will the woman feel most comfortable Mm. yeah where will she feel most supported knowing that then i had met my really good friend Jane she ran a cafe in Cusco and I through my pregnancy had these like she had this most incredible chocolate milkshake Hershey's chocolate milkshake that I I was practically a vegan but that just made me not a vegan (laughs) I would go and have this chocolate Hershey's milkshake and just be in heaven and and we got talking and she was Australian And she had a fascinating story. So she got pregnant too and had a baby in Peru. And Jack is four years um, older than Omkara. So Jane and I became very close friends. And she was tapping into, you know, she knew that I did yoga. and She goes, can you come and teach me yoga? And then she'd bring a few friends and um, we'd do it in her apartment. And then all of a sudden there were more friends joining in and then all of a sudden I needed to rent a hall and then I was running yoga and I'm like, I'm not a yoga teacher, but yeah, okay, I'll show you what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I started teaching and then then we had, yeah, we just, she was always so generous and spacious and she had an interesting story. When she moved to Peru, she had no money, totally broke, credit card debts and she had a history of running a cafe in Sydney and Paddy, who ran the Irish pub, kind of she was renting a, a room in his hostel area and then he offered her to set up a cafe and so she worked at the cafe she set it up she designed it she you know they designed the menu they designed the layout and what it looked like it is now one of the most popular cafes in Cusco it has become so it just was so prosperous slowly slowly she became I think it was 35% owner with him so he gave her shares in it and then he she was 35 and he was 35 and then the rest was profit share amongst the staff and so Peru being a third world country you'd often walk into restaurants and everybody's a little bit flatlined and miserable and you know minimum wage there is $200 a month so it's really hard yeah there but Jane would you know being the humanitarian that she was she would get women in the kitchen babies on backs doing the cooking and if they stayed with her for a long time they would then win shares in the in the in the business because it became so popular American tipping was a huge thing so they would do the minimum wage plus tips plus the profit share so these people who were simple farmer women were starting to 
earn well and not only provide for themselves and their little family, but often it's the whole family that they're providing for the parents and the grandparents. It's amazing. Know. Yeah. So she had, she was visionary and she, there was also another organization that, that she got girls to come out of and they were, so in Peru, abortion is illegal. Young girls who are raped at very young ages and they fall pregnant. So you know, we're talking 12, 13 year olds, they have to have those babies. So a house was set up for them by a mission, a missionary from um, Spain. The girls would go and live there because then the family disowned them. So the fam, so the girls would go and live in that house. And often these girls are coming from a rape or, or sexual violation background. So they would live in this house and have these beautiful women, ment- mother mentors come in and support them and live in the house with them and teach them to mother. Yeah, and mother them, but mother them into mothers because they were still kids themselves. She would hire, once they become 16, she would then hire those girls to into the cafe and start teaching them how to, you know, do that and earn a living. And yeah, so there was a big step, but it was hard because some of those girls were so traumatized and coming from such damaged families that I just, my jaw would drop with the stories that Jane would share. So Jane and I went on to be very good friends. She helped me so, so much when I was trying to leave Ankara's father and I lived with her for a time before we flew out. Several years after coming here, she fell very sick with ovarian cancer and she passed away. And her son at the time was Omi's age, maybe 13, um, was adopted by the auntie in Brisbane. So he moved from Peru to Brisbane and he's comes and sees me all the time so he's coming next week and he stays with me and i feel like it's my other son so omi's got a big brother jack beautiful amazing connection we feel very i feel very very connected to jack and to jane and that story and always her humanitarian ways just so stayed with me and inspired me as a running my own business now and how do i do a fair exchange with my community that's amazing that you've taken that and that's had such which i can totally Mm. understand impact on you yeah and what you've learned from that so you had the you had onkara had onkara and you had had him at home i had him at home i found a midwife who had trained in the amazon leone was german and she'd lived in peru for about 25 years and trained out in the amazon with the local traditional midwives which i absolutely loved she was a force to be reckoned with trained in the amazon that's yeah. that is how i would imagine in the middle of the jungle just... in the middle she lived in the jungle with these midwives these tribal midwives how do they birth they don't have emergency buzzers on the walls they don't have helicopter evacuations and they don't life and death and how do you birth well in natural conditions very primitive as I would imagine yes. it to be. Yeah. So Leonie was a force to be reckoned with. She came from Berlin, really tough woman. Like often I felt quite intimidated by her powerfulness, but yet so held, so deeply held. And so I was not going to die and my baby wasn't going to die. That's how I felt. I saw her and I went, oh my God, we're not going to die. Thank God. Because I'd convinced Venny, my obstetrician friend, to attend me at home but I knew she didn't have the you need a bit of balls and so what we're, we're that going, feels really wrong to say no I know what you mean balls, yeah. I get what you mean completely <laughs> so but what was the bit where you said before you mm. talked about the hardest thing you know as if you the childbirth was really awful oh or it was challenging. really hard I what was, was so what was the child what was hard about it apart from the obvious pain and time so I guess, um but. I went into birth I can do this 
of course I can do it. I was kind of naive and inspirationally naive. So that's what Rhea Dempsey would call it. A bit about how, like, feeling like I knew what I was doing. I knew how to do the breath work. I knew it all. and dun, 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 dun. But then really in the framework of it, now in this work myself, in reflection back to my birth, I didn't have the right setup to hold me emotionally. I didn't have the emotional intelligence or the language to articulate what was happening for me internally. I was 29. I had a very, very tough, intimidating midwife from Germany who lived in the Amazon, who attends the local farmer women of Peru who just get on with it. Not Jewish princesses from Melbourne. So I had her. She was fabulous, but I needed more softness. But that was, I guess, you know, when you create a team around you for birth now, you you, you have certain people in certain roles to support you in certain ways and everybody's got their role. I definitely know that because of I need mothering and I needed nurturing. I needed lots of softness and I needed to be deeply seen and held and any feelings of shame or or shyness that were coming out of that needed to be just quickly held and nurtured so I often wouldn't feel okay I was gonna say that didn't happen then clearly yeah well it was just a long journey I was my statement line would come up a lot you know how I was talking before about I can't do it yes yeah my belief statement would come up a lot and I think that's all that could fall I can't do this I can't I can't I can't I can't I can't but yet another part of my brain was like, oh, I really hope they ignore me because I know I can do it. So it was like this internal battle of the voices. What was coming out wasn't, wasn't, wasn't what was happening in here. And I was so overwhelmed by what was coming out, it was almost convincing me that I couldn't do it, right? Every woman does, you know, in the birth sometimes, and it's how we hold and support her. So Omi's birth from start to finish was 38 hours. I was really happy in the beginning bit. <laughs> And then I got really unhappy. And what Leonie used to say, you were so sweetly spoken in Spanish. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Aussie truck driver. And all I could do was swear my way through the whole thing and say, I can't do it. Oh, my God. And I, I was exhausting them by my, my amount of whining. So I could feel that or I felt shame around that. Or was I thinking that? I don't know. Or were they feeling that or not, you know, not being able to hold it and... Alfredo kind of disappeared in the room. He was not what I needed. I didn't feel like he could meet my needs very well. At right towards the very end, when I was probably about eight, nine or ten centimetres, my we weren't staying in my home because we didn't have good water supply up to the house. So we were staying at a friend's house on the top floor. She was off giving a tour to a group of Germans in Machu Picchu. And they had just... They were, I think they were like metaphysical meditators. And so they were all downstairs listening to me roaring upstairs. <laughs> but I had a group of like 20 people downstairs and there's me laboring. Like the whole of Cusco would have heard me. <laughs> just, <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, this is insane. So finally she arrived home and she was the only natural's english-speaking person in the room and i just went i can't do this ananda i can't i can't just take me to the hospital get him out i just cannot do this and then she just took my face in her hands and she just went you 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 are well and your baby is well and we're gonna do this for many many years everybody called me shakti which means life force 
I kind of adopted that in India and then it just stuck for many, many years and nobody ever called me Sarah. I just, she goes, you are Shakti, you are life, you're bringing life, let's do this. She just wrapped her legs around me, literally, because I wouldn't move, I was locked down and I was just so stubborn. And so she wrapped one leg behind and one in the front and then put her face up against my face and just held me. And and she goes, do you want everybody to be quiet? And I said, yes, because the chatter was annoying. And she just made sure the blanket was on at the right time. The blanket came off at the right time because the hot and the cold in the body while laboring was so intense. And there was this little gas heater and she goes, just stare at the heater. And then every single contraction before it even came on, she knew it was coming. She was amazing. She was just, she could see my tummy changing. She could hear the slight change in my breath. And I learned to be a doula because of her love and care for me in that time. And if throughout all my labor, that was my favorite time because I felt like somebody deeply was with me deeply with, with no judgment. She didn't judge me and she took charge of the room. Even though she wasn't a midwife, it was exactly what I needed. And she was a grandmother. She'd had four of her own babies in a cave in India and she'd travel the world and she, her kids were already having kids. And so she was just a very knowledgeable. She could see my fear. She could feel it and held it really, really beautifully. So then I stood up and then I went to the bathroom and I went, oh my God, my baby's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then I sat down on a birth stool and birthed him. Wow. And then I said, oh my God, that hurts so much. We're never having sex again. <laughs> I'll just never do that again. <laughs> yeah. That bit. <laughs> that bit. <laughs> yeah, I was in shock. I was quite traumatised by the intensity. Home birth can be wonderful, but it, what I needed was an under the whole time. You mentioned that Alfredo... Yes. ...wasn't there He was there. He, w- he just was out of his depth. He was in the room, but not present. He was, um, or he, he was sitting behind always. me and just um, supporting my back, but it wasn't who I was leaning towards for support and comfort. And so was that the beginning of the end or not? I guess being a birth worker, when I witness women labouring now, and you can see the way the man shows up for a woman in birth, you can really see a lot about a relationship at that time. So now, knowing what I know and reflecting back, I can see so much that was missing us we were just brand new we didn't know each other for very long and we had challenges so how long after you met did you get pregnant immediately so months it was like we i think it was on the second night we slept together we got oh so it wasn't months it was was like immediate yeah. yeah okay wow yeah yeah it was really really fast social culturally what I thought I wanted and then you become a mother and then all of a sudden you come with your feet down on earth and you go right what do I need to do to raise a child and then all the responsibility that is innately intuitive to me was very different to his innate intuition around doing it and so how long after you knew you'd had Ankara then you went okay I've got it got to go look we came back to Australia when I tried for a really long time how long was a really long time? Oh, three years. Yeah. So in that, in those three years, the whole time you knew this wasn't right, but or you've had doubts. I had. We had many occasions, and again, I didn't have the emotional intelligence or the ability to be with my big feelings. The work didn't really happen until I came home to Australia. I just knew I wasn't happy. He wasn't meeting me. And you discussed it, and what happened? You he argued. Just, you or how was he? Didn't he didn't get it. He couldn't get it. He didn't understand it. Maybe that's social or cultural. He couldn't get it. 
lots and lots of talking, lots of spiritual chatter, but not couldn't get it. He didn't under he couldn't understand what I was saying. Mm. And so, what were you? What did you need from him? So that was infuriating for me. That was so mm. frustrating. It was just like again, somebody not me. I say it goes back to the whole. And so we go back to mum, yeah. yeah, and dad not being seen, which is going to trigger there. you, which is going to completely oh, yeah. just. And I had to... nothing, nothing to manage those big feelings as well back then. I did have vipassana, and I had that you know, contemplation ability, but it really wasn't the full circle of healing really came when I came home and I started learning techniques about how to hold my big feelings. And so you mentioned it before, Jane was there as that anchor for she you? She was one of the anchors, also Olga. So I worked at the time with um, when Omkara, after Omkara was born, I worked in a travel agency and then I worked teaching at a school English and she was incredible she was my also a rock and she was really supportive she was very traveled as well so she was Peruvian but incredibly traveled so she was able to really see what was going on and just yeah inspiring me to look Mm. at it a little differently Mm. to open me up because I was terrified I was like here I am in Peru, I've bought a property, I have a farm, an amazing house, a child, and I want to leave the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and I want to leave the Garden of Eden. Oh my God, it was just crazy. Mm. But there was a draw card. He did something that I was really unhappy. He just wasn't with me. You're really not in this, are you? And you're really just looking out for yourself and you really just see me as a gringo and not as your life partner who you're trying to create and build a home and become, you know, really solid family together. So it really broke my heart. But at the same time, I now in retrospect, it's like, but what should I expect? He wasn't, never showed any of those signs anyway. So disappointed in myself, you know, so much heartbreak. Why did you, you said disappointed in myself? Why? Making that choice, yeah. Making those choices to marry, to buy the property, to have a child with a man like that but then so you know he remembers from a vision (laughs) that I kind of he was coming whether I don't know yeah but do you think that was just your journey anyway weirdly I mean I don't know yes it is yeah or do you think you had like I uh, I do believe you have choices yes there's a path you can go I wouldn't change anything because he is like a gift for me I wouldn't change a thing. But at the same time, I was disappointed at the time for making poor decisions. I should have sat on that a bit more. I should have waited a little more to see where this relate. you know, not rush into things so much, basically. Impulsive decisions. And would you say that you were an impulsive person and you're not now or you're still fairly impulsive? No, no, I'm not impulsive. I don't think I am impulsive. I just think I was really sure of myself at that time. When did you leave Peru then? So I left Omi was three and a half. It was just the two of you that left. And we were supposed to come, the three of us. We'd really, by then, fractured so bad that he was like, I'm not going anywhere with you. And so he stayed. And I was desperate to try and keep him involved with Omkara. But that became very, very hard. So his all his all his triggers were up. I was the enemy. I became the one who's doing all the wrong. And he's thinks of himself as a saint and and why back here why did you not just carry on what you've been doing what made you think i need to come back to 
Australia. Yeah. I found it very, very hard in Peru. I was always a gringo. I was always the foreign blonde, blue-eyed girl. When you go on a holiday there, it's the most spectacular thing that you could do. But when you live there, and I was there for five years then, so the year that I was pregnant and then when Omi's nearly four, so that's five years there. Apart from my Jane and Olga and a couple of other Westerners, it was very, very hard to deeply connect with Peruvian people. They don't talk the way we talk. They don't do this. They don't drop in to a deeper level of communication. So for me, it was completely unsatiating because I am. Yeah, I get that. I needed to leave. I needed to come home. I needed to, to be okay here in Melbourne and I needed to get really solid for Om in myself and I came back and I was on a mission. <laughs> I was like, right, just going to get a job just so I can pay the psychologist and no stone unturned. I interviewed about six psychologists trying to find the right person to journey with me and we're still together to today. We just see each other a bit less. Still, she has held me all the way through my separation, the rebuilding of my life. How's it been being a single parent with everything else you <laughs> yeah. just said? Because you've done a lot as a... Yeah. seen a lot of the world and seen a lot just happen to you how, how do you how's parenting people stop does that come to you naturally or you don't you yeah just... look it does and it and 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 I'm all about connection and I'm all about you know how how are we with our big feelings and modeling maintaining my inspiration to stay a healthy emotional model for Omkara I'm very very driven by parenting I think Omkara has changed my life for the better I feel so much more connected to myself than I ever have in all my life. And it gives me a great peace. But I'm not triggered by a man, so I don't know how deep it runs. I've removed myself from all the things that don't serve me and don't make me the best version of myself. And I've put things in to help me be feeling the better version of myself. But I get triggered by my son, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do get triggered, yes. And ha- But how's it been I for... I ain't no saint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> has it been for him, do you think? I think... Um, that... To how well does he, does he speak to his dad at all? No, not? there's no contact now. And Does um, he talk about his dad? Never. So in the beginning, I really insisted that Alfredo call him daily you know on Skype and support me in this transition here but Alfredo found it very hard for me to suggest anything to him he was just in complete anger and rage and yeah so it was it was tricky to get him on the phone in any type of nice way without being emotionally abusive to me so that was incredibly testing every time he would talk to Om it'll be around all your mother wants is money, all your mother... Like, it's so limited, his ability to think and feel beyond what he thinks is really hard. What he was feeding into him, he goes, do you want to live there with me? Do you want to live with mum or do you want to live with me? Like, you know, just his his orientation around how to even talk to a child was so disturbing to me. So we'd set up times for him to call. He'd never call. We would wait around And then I got to a certain point where I just went, you know what, you're not collaborating. You've never really collaborated. I've got to do the way, I've got to do the grieving that he's never going to show up the way I need in this parenting journey together and make choices for me and Om that are going to help and heal us and hold us. And he's choosing not to be part of that. 
because he doesn't want to collaborate. And so that was really painful. I still get really like, oh, <laughs> you know, was, I was terrified to do that. So many studies show that when the child is, the father is alive but not interested in the child or not in contact, the damage, psychological damage is greater. So I buried myself in therapy <laughs> for a really freaking long time. That was really hard. It was hard. The guilt was so hard. You know, because would I go back to Peru? But if I go back, Alfredo is scary. So I, in Peru, he needs to sign all documentations for Ankara to leave. Would he, you know, be controlling and manipulate the situation to get what he needs and wants? And he just, it was so feuded with emotions that it was really hard to navigate and to stay really centered. And it was really, really hard to put what does our child need to be feeling okay in the world number one when you have that kind of person sitting on the other end who's just not hearing anything that I anything that I have to say very quickly he was in another relationship and then it just even spiraled even further out of more disrespect I just was like I need to make choices which what does Ankara need Okay, he needs to be in an amazing kinder. So I put him, oh, thank God we found ourselves in Steiner and I met Nemi and, you know, great friendships and beautiful learning environment and so gentle and soft. And I just, and I have the most incredible, by that point, mum was still difficult a little bit. Mum can be great, but mum can also be terrible. And so just constantly na navigating her was exhausting. I was depressed managing my feelings so what does you know keep and keep asking every day what does Omi need to be okay and what do I need to do to be okay so that I can be the best mum for him and him not reflect on me as a depressed or absent mother I don't want history to rewrite so I deeply committed to taking deep care of myself so I keep filling my cup I recognize that if I didn't get support two nights a week my emotions would spill and then I'd just be like, I feel unsupported, I can't do this. And so then, but I noticed, and my dad was an amazing, solid support. He was just... So was he a, a better dad oh, he was then than he was yeah, well, he now? Was, not now, but he was very, that time very when he was involved. Very, very involved. And do you have a sense of why you think he was so involved then? I think he'd grown up so much. He really got it. He was now on his third wife. He'd had a very broken relationship with the first one. He really missed me. He really, you know, our relationship. So you had the connection with him then? Yeah. Like a strong connection with him, yeah. even though there's obviously a lot of other stuff yeah. attached to that. Yeah. You're getting upset now, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that would be tough. So he was there for you. Yeah. And who else was, who else was, you can stop you. I haven't got a tissue. I should have got <laughs> tissues in here. Might need to stop for a minute. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. So your dad died? So dad died four years ago now in July. So how have you managed since then, given that he was such a rock for you? Who do you go to? I don't. I come home. I, I'm coming from within me now, so I've had to really... Find strength from within. Yeah. Which would be tough because you've got no... So sounding board, someone to... T oh, yes. Who do, you, who do you go to for advice? Who do you go to to... I have an amazing group of friends who've become family. I still see my psychologist every two or three weeks. She's become an imperative part of my 
not not just my inner world world well-being but it helps me better be a better mum and it helps me be a better therapist too to my clients so making mm. sure that I'm getting supervision because I see a lot and come across a lot of things given what you do we'll come on to that in a bit more detail mm. that has there are there are moments where you get triggered much less about dad not no okay that what I meant specifically was when you're with women going through and things yeah. they say and do they remind you of like will it get you upset because it reminds really. you of your childbirth not experience or just something from the past? Not, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Yep. That's you, really... you can separate the two and Absolutely. I'm, I'm I could not professional do this work. and yeah. yeah, I could not do this work without having a very strong focus on what that mother needs and not enmeshing my story at all. It's about being completely available to where she is and what she needs in that time and keeping my story completely out. And do you think that you've, that what, given what you do now is again part of your journey in terms of being able to give you the ability to just move on in your life? And so when I came back to Australia, I was hoping to study midwifery regardless. And I, obviously was then single and doing a whole degree was overwhelming and I'm not a strong learner I have lots of challenges so I was just like oh my god why do that to myself so then I went and did a doula training with Ria and did that for a year and I found to be really like oh this is if not better because I get to be truly with women and what I'm what I truly gravitate towards is connection and being with women. And I guess that in my birth, I couldn't find my my words around what was happening for me internally. And now I sit with women and they don't need to find those words. I can see I'm very intuitive and very sensitive. So I'm just with them and accompanying them in the most non-judgmental way and being the Ananda, you know, who was for me in his birth and do you pick the the mothers to be or, or does it in terms of the clients that you yeah. get how does that work is it like Gosh. i can say to you oh i can so, pick you because you have energy yeah, or... nurtured birth has had its own life of its own and i have grown and i you know in the beginning it was just me so i was just um doula working and then ria's like but you're a massage therapist do pregnancy massage and i'm like oh yeah i should do that (laughs) so so then i kind of added that in but again you're talking to somebody who was completely depressed and you know my life was fragmented and i'm navigating overwhelmed with my mother and overwhelmed with my separation and overwhelmed you know trying to hadn't been here for 15 years i was away from australia for all that time and all my old friends were off doing their own thing and involved in their own life stories and you know fitting in was really hard and so I just went very introverted and very what do I need to do to heal what do I need to do to feel well in my body as a mother and 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 how to work and so I would just do the bare minimum to be able to manage all the costs of everything but also to, to find wellness, yeah. More and more nurtured birth just sprouted and then somebody asked, oh, I'd love to come and help you and can I join massaging? And I'm like, oh my God, yes, you're a midwife, amazing, come and join. And so then she came, but then she left and then somebody else came and then all of a sudden now I have a team of 
we're five, but we've got two more people jumping on. I've got a midwife joining the team. I've got incredible experience happening at Cabrini where I've I work really really closely with the head obstetrician and really you know supporting a cultural change around birth and around women and that it's woman centered it's a nurturing centered it's not medically you know like yes it needs to be cared for it's, but it's often a woman's emotions is lost in all of that so how do we bring it back to nurturing the woman emotionally physically and all the levels so I've been very you know working very hard for the last couple of years to immerse myself in there and to inspire change and so now I run meditation workshops for the midwives and I meditate with them and I massage them so I'm taking care of the midwives and I'm taking care of the mothers so that's been a really massive shift so nurtured birth has gone from me being only able to cope with me <laughs> to now I'm co- I'm managing five six seven people who are coming on and it's a reflection of where I am in myself as well of what I'm capable of holding it can only grow as much as what I'm capable of doing and what do you put that down to uh, my inner work my my ability to hold myself in the world mm-hmm. and do you think it was always there no. Or do you think you've learned that? I've had to heal and learn. And I'm learning as I go. Because that's a lot of responsibility. And that's huge. a lot. The feeling of feeling overwhelmed. I know when it starts to creep in. And then I have a system in place to support myself. When I start to have those big feelings. So that I can manage it. And can continue to provide support and responsibility to the team. And to the what I'm providing. And so how challenging is that given you talked way back at the beginning of the conversation Mm. about being present, Mm. that if I just listen to what you're saying, I Mm. go, even though you've got a team, and maybe I'm not understanding that part of it, wow, you can't be here much because you you must be out Mm. doing all the things that you're doing, Mm. you know. So how do you you deal with Omkara? Delegate. I delegate a lot of my tasks to the team and I allocate my time to Omkara's schooling hours so that I'm working, trying to keep all the work within the schooling hours or when he's at soccer and things like that, I'll, I'll do things. And Omkara in all of that, you know, having downtime with him is so important and time to connect with him and is imperative every day. And at the moment he's navigating year seven, so... A lot of our time together is navigating year seven. Like, what homework do you have? Okay, take me through. And teaching him systems to put in place so that he's not overwhelmed. So he's dealing with his own overwhelm of the homework that's coming in from going from a Steiner school to a mainstream school's immense change. So, and he's a little bit, needs a bit of support in the handover of that. And I know that this time is imperative to set him up well for moving forward there. So we're doing a lot of, you know, learning how to learn, learning how to be organised, learning how, and I'm creating space in my day to make sure that I can help him instil that in him. And how do you think he's... I have only one child, so it's a little easier, but 
of course, my doula work is 24-7 and I feel very, you know, I have to jump up at the middle of the night and go to a birth and what do I do with, oh, my calling a nanny? I, have, I feel very supported by my community. I have always been very supported. I have never missed a birth. It's phenomenal, <laughs> really. Omi gets plenty of me. And how do you think he's adjusted to... Does he remember? I know you... But what would be your sense? Being a child who doesn't have a dad here... And my dad kind of filled that role for him. We really deeply miss him. And you can really feel the absence of that holding. That's been incredibly painful and hard. And boy, do I miss him because he'd do all the soccer. (laughs) But then I kind of fell in love with the soccer too. So we're, yeah, we'd go together. It'd be something we'd do together to go and watch Omi play. And so I think that Om is incredible in his resilience and his emotional capacity. My brothers were very present from when he was very little and now that they have their own kids it's become a lot less but he still feels the love so strong in his heart and he's always reflecting back when I'm a dad I want to be like Elan and Sean and so I'm like yes good (laughs) you know because they are amazing dads they are phenomenal and so he's being modelled fatherhood through my brothers you know, I've been so supported. I'm so grateful. I've got the most amazing friends around who've been so supportive of Ami and taking him under the wing. And I've been so happy that he gets to see different family constitutions. And then we get to talk about what feels good, what doesn't feel quite good. What is it? And how does he feel in that? And so always coming back to that for us has been very, very important. So how's Ami? I think he's um, challenged at the moment with school. How are you with men? What do you how, what do you feel about I'm relationships? I'm yeah. interested. And so, what do you do for yourself then? Sometimes watching a movie or snuggling on the couch with Om and watching a movie is like bliss to us. It's our little downtime. Or we'll go to the you know we'll find moments. We go to a gallery or we go on a city adventure or we go on a nature adventure. We go away every summer. We go camping, big camping trip. Usually I take all January off and I'm off call and I'm, you know, just completely wind down in nature, fill my cup and then it fuels me. love to do more meditation always. I massage a lot so when I'm massaging I'm often meditating. That is my meditation time as well. Internally? Internally, yeah. So I can be really present and connected to the person. That's good. I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morereal one at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, 
at gmail.com. Once again, morerealone at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support.